Let us hear God's Word. We first read from the Gospel, from the Gospel of St. John chapter 14, and reading from verse 15. These are the words of God. If you love me, said Jesus, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Amen. And then we read from the book of Acts, Acts um, chapter 2, and reading from the first verse. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How, how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come to meditate on Your Word this morning that by Your Holy Spirit You might speak to us to encourage and enable us. In Jesus' name, amen. A question. How do we move from being people who believe in Jesus to being people who have the courage to be excited about Jesus, to live for Jesus, and to tell people about Jesus, and to see the world around us changed. How do we do that? The story of the book of Acts makes it quite clear. Jesus rose from the dead at Easter. They knew He was alive, 
But then 50 days passed until the day of Pentecost. 50 days where they enjoyed the presence of Jesus. They gathered with Him in, 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 in Jerusalem and in Galilee, but they did nothing. They told no one. And I think sometimes as a church, it feels like we're living in those 50 days. We believe stuff. We know Jesus died for us. We know He rose again. We have that hope for eternal life. And we gather together and we worship, but it feels like we have no impact. Does it sometimes feel like that? We talk about mission, but we don't really seem to do anything that's very effective. We talk about living our lives that are different, but they don't really seem like they've got an awful lot of power and excitement in them. We, we just believe and, and, and we go to church and nothing much happens. And I wonder sometimes that's because we believe in God, we know what Jesus has done, but we're stuck in a place where the Holy Spirit is not really part of our lives. So, what's the solution? Well, if we read Acts chapter 2, it offers two solutions. So, here's the message this morning. Set your heads on fire and get drunk. Yep, that sounds like a solution. Set your hair on fire and get drunk. Because that seems to be what they do in Acts chapter 2. Actually, we're having family around this afternoon for a barbecue, so those two things might well be an option. You know, that's not what it's about. Or is it? I want to come back to those two things. The fire of God touching our head and us acting as if we are drunk. But it starts with something else. One of the things that's quite strange about this whole story is it starts with disempowerment. You know, the disciples are told not at the beginning of Acts, oh, go out and be witnesses, go out and do things, go out and do all these wonderful things. They're actually told something else. Here is the first command that Jesus gives after, in the book of Acts to His disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. There's the first command of Jesus, and it is a command to do nothing. Do nothing. There's a whole world out there to be won. There's a message to be shared. There's all sorts of things that they could have been doing, but they are told to do nothing. Now, the first thing I'd like to know is how countercultural that is. Because our culture tells us to be doing things, doesn't it? We show that we're worthy, that we have something to offer because we're active. And some of you are tremendous activists. You're on the go the whole time. And when you're not on the go, you're feeling guilty because you're not on the go. Is that fair enough? You don't stop, you just keep doing it one thing after another, after another, after another. And here comes the Word of God and says, stop. But you know, it's worse than that. 
Jesus puts it even more bluntly in, the, in an earlier passage to the one we read, where He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me. Without me, you can do nothing. Without Him, you can do nothing and you can achieve nothing. Now, this is tremendously countercultural. Because our culture says this, believe in yourself. Untap the hidden you and all the things that you can do. If you believe in yourself, you can do anything. You can change the world, says our culture. If only you can find it. That's why people go in for the self-help books and the therapy and all the other things. If only you can discover what you can do, you can make a huge big difference. And Jesus comes along and in the face of all those self-help books on the shelf says, no, you can't. Oh, well, hello, Mr. Negativity. What do you mean we can't? We're supposed to feel empowered and enabled. And Jesus is coming along and saying, no, you can't. The gospel begins in a very strange way because it begins not with empowerment, but with disempowerment. It begins with a reality check. You are broken and you can't fix yourself. You are sinful to the point that even the best things that you can do are so compromised by your conflicted motivations that God says they are like filthy rags. Your best deeds, your charitable works, they are worthless. Without me, says Jesus, you can do nothing of any eternal value. This is weird. You don't need to find hidden depths in yourself. What you need is a Savior. But I would want to suggest that although this is countercultural, it is actually reality. You know, I, 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 I remember going to the high school, not, not locally, but where I was before, and it had a big notice up, up on, on the wall, and this is, sums up so much of our modern culture. Just believe in yourself and you can do anything. Well, I want to be a brain surgeon, but I, I failed all my O grades. You can't do that. And here comes the gospel and, and deals with reality with us and says, we are so broken that we can't do things. And Pentecost comes along, and here's the second point about it, and, 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 and as Pentecost comes, it says, you can do nothing until I give you and enable you to do it. One of the things that the Pentecost begins with, it, it, it talks about a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole earth. And then the tongues of fire coming from above. Now, here's the, the, the thing here about the Spirit. It's not that suddenly the Spirit within them suddenly began to touch the Spirit of Jesus and they realized that they had the Spirit in them. No, it's not that at all. Actually, something is coming from outside, a wind from heaven, fire from above is coming and resting on each one of them. Power that will enable them to do things. Our culture says you have what it takes to fulfill your potential. And 100,000 Facebook posts that people post and all their banality agrees with it. And the gospel comes and says, no, you need a Savior who will deliver you from your sins, will show you the real meaning of life, 
and will empower you to make all the difference in the world. And it comes from heaven. So, what were they doing when this happened? Well, the Bible tells us that they were doing two things. They weren't reading a self-help book. They weren't trying to go on some sort of course where they meditated on things. They were doing two things. They were meeting together, and they were praying. What were they praying? Well, Jesus had told them what to pray. He'd said, ask the Father to send the Spirit. And that's what they were doing that day. They were praying that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to empower them, that they might change the world. It wasn't just that they were sort of gathering and having a service and saying, let's worship Jesus together. It was that they were actually asking that God would change them, transform them, empower them, that they could be His agents of change. Are we doing that as we gather? Are we coming just to enjoy a service that will get us through the day? Or are we coming as we gather, wherever we gather as Christians, and we are saying, Lord, we are struggling. Lord, we cannot do what you've asked us to do. So send your Holy Spirit and empower us. Change us that we might be ready to serve the way that you would have us serve. It's a very simple question here. Do we actually believe the power of God can change lives? I don't mean do we know that's the right answer to the minister's question. I mean, do we actually believe that God has the power to change lives. I want to offer you two proofs that God can do that. The first is history. It's an amazing story, actually, and it's all true. Verifiably, historically true. A few little men, scared in Jerusalem, hiding from the Romans, suddenly changed the world. 3,000 came to believe and very shortly, that little Galilean movement from the backwaters of the Roman Empire began to have such an influence on the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire, first of all, opposed it. And then, and then, that mighty empire changed and turned around in the next 300 years until it became Christian itself. The gladiator games stopped. The brothels were closed. The temples of the old gods were left empty until the name of Jesus was proclaimed in the heart of the Roman Empire itself. And that was a miracle. Nobody thought that was going to happen, and yet it did. And it didn't stop there, because when the Roman Empire became Christian, the Roman Empire was under threat from all these barbarians outside, the Goths and the Visigoths, the Angles, the English, and the Saxons, and the mad folk that lived in Scotland, and all these people that had pagan ideas that were threatening the Roman Empire. And here's the thing, all these pagans outside the Roman Empire came, and they destroyed that Christian empire. And you think, well, that's it. They've come worshiping Woden, and they've come worshiping this God and that God, and they have destroyed the Roman Empire. But what happened? The Visigoths, the Hungarians, the Huns, and all the other people that had flooded into the Roman Empire one by one over the next 400 years, all became Christians. Transformed Europe. And then, of course, the Europeans went out from there into all parts of the world, and they didn't always go out doing good things. They went out to enslave. They went out to make empire. They went out to make, do many things that we are now deeply ashamed of, and rightly so. But they also went out with the gospel, 
and they went out with the gospel to all parts of the world, and it was a compromised gospel. But here's the thing. The gospel has a power that we don't have because the gospel began to transform places. The gospel began to grow in South America, in, in, in parts of Africa. It was already in parts of Africa since the day of Pentecost, actually, but it began to grow in all sorts of places. And as the African churches and the South American churches, and now the church in China and Korea began to grow, they began to realize that the gospel was bigger than European culture. And they're now putting us right. And I'll tell you this, as Scotland and these places that are becoming more and more pagan, more and more faithless, if they are evangelized for the Lord, they will be evangelized by Africans and South Americans and Chinese people because the gospel is just bigger than any culture or any place or any time or any language. And that all starts on the day of Pentecost. And what is that proof of? It is proof beyond doubt of the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform cultures and societies and lives and people because it always has done and it's never stopped doing it and no historian can deny it. And I'll give you a second piece of evidence after all of that as if that were not enough. And here's the second piece of evidence. You. You know, I, I sometimes think that we ignore the obvious. We come to church and we pray that people's situations will change. Perhaps you're praying regularly for a friend who doesn't believe or has lost their faith. And perhaps you're at the point where you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure that God changes people. They just don't believe. That's how it is. Last week, I spoke to two people in this congregation. It's all right. I'm not going to name them in case any of them are realizing it's them. But as they began to tell me their story completely separately, they told me a story of how once they were outside and God brought them back in. I could take a risk, but I'm willing to bet that that's the story of many of you in this room. You've forgotten it. You've forgotten the marvel of it. There are some folk here who never left, who always believed since they were we, and they've never stopped believing. But there are many, many of us who went outside or were outside, and the Lord Jesus brought you back in. And the fact you are here today is a testimony to that miracle of the God who changes, faith, changes uh, lives. And can I, can I just encourage you to do one thing? Tell people your story. Because the greatest encouragement I had last week amidst a lot of other discouragement, was those two people who told me that story. And it reminded me that what we do as we proclaim the gospel, as we build the church, as we reach out, as we invite people in, as we say to folk, we're doing this, why don't you come in, is we are expecting that the Lord Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, will change lives. And He always has done. So if you're one of the people who knows that in your life, and you might not even recognize it as a miracle, share it. Because you're encouraging somebody else to believe it and to pray it and to know it. So Pentecost, they prayed that God's Spirit would come, and the Spirit came. Fire. It's a scary thing, isn't it? I, I, I know as I was doing that, quite a lot of folk were nervous. This man went and got a fire extinguisher. Ye have little faith in me. But fire is really, really scary, and, and rightly so, because it's dangerous. 
And in the Old Testament, uses fire as an image of the presence of God, and it does that to remind us it's scary. Moses went to a burning bush, a flame, a fire that was all-consuming and yet did not consume, and he was told, take off your shoes, you're entering the holy ground of God. Fire would lead the people as they came out of Egypt, the pillar of fire going on ahead of them. And it would lead them for 50 days after Passover until they came to 50 days after Passover, something that would be remembered in the day of Pentecost by the Jewish people 50 days later, when they came to Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, God appeared to them. And He appeared on the mountain of Sinai. And He appeared as fire and smoke. And it was so frightening that the people said, if we go up the mountain, we will die. Moses, you'll have to go up for us. You'll have to stand in the middle as the intercessor for us because we cannot go up the mountain. And on the mountain, God gave the commands, fire kills. And fire would be used in the Old Testament as a symbol of God's holiness and God's judgment. Fire would be poured upon them. At one point, the people were being condemned for their idolatry. And it says in Deuteronomy, God is an all-consuming fire. And it was supposed to terrify people. You better keep the law. Because the fire of God is holy. And so, fire is a terrifying thing. But here's the thing on the day of Pentecost. As the fire comes down, it falls on each one of them. Not just on the apostles, but it touches every single one of them and it brings them new life. It's God's holy presence. And rather than coming to scare it comes intimately on each one of us. Remember, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, He was baptized by John in the Jordan, and He heard a voice, and He saw the Spirit descend upon Him like a dove. And what did the voice say? It said, this is my Son whom I love. That's what the Spirit comes to do, to express love. And in fact, as you read the verses in in the New Testament about the coming of the Spirit, you'll notice that it doesn't always talk about gifts and fire and enablement. It talks about knowing that we are children. We read it earlier in, in, in what Jesus wrote in John 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. You will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever keeps my commandments, the one who loves me, will be loved by my Father. And here's the first thing that the Spirit does. The Spirit comes and reminds us that we are loved. Remember, I started off saying you're useless, and you can't do things, and you can do nothing of yourself, and you need to to, to admit that. But here's the second thing that the gospel says, you are entirely loved. We find it even clearer in in Romans 8 where Paul writes of this of the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear, rather the Spirit received is brought about your adoption to the sonship that by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You'll find the same again in Galatians. You're utterly useless, you're utterly sinful, 
but you're utterly loved. And you know, here is the truth of the gospel that is a great encouragement. This isn't just about feeling that I am loved by God, but the Holy Spirit comes because when I feel that I am utterly loved by God, it totally changes the way that I live. You know, most people in the world today are living in ways because they are hungry to be authenticated. So they're pushing their whole lives into their jobs so that they can have an achievement, so they can feel that they have value, that they have some purpose in life, and some of us are doing that. Or they push into being the best parents, the best grandparents, the best family folk, doing everything for their children so that they can sit back and say, look, I'm worth something. I'm a I got something right in my life, or, or, or they're, they're trying to accumulate money because it, it sort of gives them a scorecard to say, I'm not a failure. I'm worth something, and we're all doing that, or we're looking at friendship groups, and we're, we're, we're trying to stay in with them because we want approval. We want people to look at our lives and say, you fit in. You belong, and we're hungry for that. But one of the problems with that is it's disabilitating because it leaves us in fear, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of not being able to do things. And therefore, we are all the time trying to fit into this world and its pattern around us because we are afraid. But here comes the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God says, I I want you to know that because you belong to Jesus, you are utterly loved by your Father. And you're not loved because you're a big success and you're power and you've got all these things within because we've just told you in the gospel that you are useless. But you are utterly, utterly loved. Loved so much that Jesus was sent to die for you that your Father would give you all of this, the promises. And you know what? That means you can live boldly. That means you can take risks That means you don't need to be afraid that people might reject you or what they might say about you because the one person that matters utterly, utterly loves you. You see how liberating that is? You don't need to be driven by career or the sense of failure because you are loved. So, yeah, we want to be set on fire this morning in our heads, in our hearts. But here's the other thing, if you're set on fire by the Spirit of God, you can live as though you were drunk. Now, when you're drunk, so I'm told, you lose your fear. You lose your inhibitions, and you're often very happy. You've met a drunk person, haven't you, if you haven't been one? That's what it's like. The problem is that The drunk person loses their inhibitions and feels really happy because they've lost touch with reality. (laughs) All the fears have been removed, all their worries have been removed by the booze for a little while and they'll come back crashing later. That's why drink is very, very dangerous. But there is a sense that to be filled with the Spirit has something in common with that and something different. Paul writes this to the Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And why is it that Paul is comparing those two things and contrasting those two things? And the simple reason is this, both of them remove your fears. 
Both of them remove your inhibitions. Both of them let you live boldly. But booze does it by removing your touch with reality. The Holy Spirit does it by putting you in touch with reality. The reality that you are completely loved. And that fills you with an inexpressible joy which will have you singing in a prison cell. That fills you with a sense of inhibition that it no longer matters what men and women see about you. That fills you with not worrying that it's embarrassing to be involved in talking about Jesus because if your friends reject you, ultimately it won't matter because the one person that does matter loves you. It gives you a great joy that receives, that receives and removes fear. That's why they boldly spoke on the day of Pentecost. They were so caught up with how much Jesus loved them that they just had to tell people about it. It's not just about speaking, of course, in that story. It's about living in a way that people can understand. You know, I, I love how the passage in Acts chapter 2 ends. Peter stands up and says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for those whom the Lord has called. You see, what Peter is saying is that as you've seen the Christians and you've seen the lack of inhibitions and you've seen the lack of fear because they're overcome with this love of, of the Lord Jesus, it's not just that they've passed on a message to you and you've heard it and you, you now understand that you need to, to confess your sins and be forgiven. You've actually seen how to live. And if you follow the Lord Jesus, you too can receive this Holy Spirit. You can have this deep security that frees you from all the things that are making you afraid, from all the things that are driving you forward, from all the things that are making you miserable or giving you short-term pleasure. And you can receive the Holy Spirit. This is the life-transforming, culture-transforming, world-transforming power that is released in the day of Pentecost. And so today, let us pray, not just that we would know that Jesus died for us, but that we would receive God's Holy Spirit, that we might know that we are loved, and we might be freed to live in the truth for Him. Set our heads on fire and live as though we were drunk with joy. Amen.